This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, community and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We are beginning our new series uh, called Why Church? Now, this might seem, uh, I don't think it actually will seem like a, a big question mark for most as to why we're even doing this. Uh, because if you've been paying attention over the last couple of years, this pandemic has caused people to rethink a lot. People have begun to rethink how they work. They've re, uh, they're rethinking how they engage with people. People have had to rethink what they've been holding on to and why. And for a lot of people, folks have really begun to rethink their faith. One of the most popular words that has been used over the last couple of years is the word deconstruction. And we'll talk about that more. For many people who are in the process of deconstructing their faith, as I've talked to folks, I suspect that it's not necessarily faith that people are deconstructing, but they're deconstructing the idea of church. They're deconstructing what church should be. They're deconstructing based on ways that they have engaged the church, ways in which they feel like they've been harmed or ways in which they have been harmed by the church. And so there's a big question that needs to be answered. And I think at the heart of much of people's deconstruction and their deconstructive uh, efforts and endeavors is really trying to get to the bottom of this key question, what is the church? And so we're hoping to get through this series and answer some of these questions. Why does the church exist? What are the purposes of the church? But not only uh, getting to the bottom of like what church should be, but how do we respond to all the ways that the church has functioned in ways that it should not have? In other words, how do people deal with church hurt? How do people deal with uh, ways in which the church has functioned uh, to to enlarge itself at the expense of its parishioners and its congregants? And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be going through this series uh, called Why Church? Why does the church exist and why has the church functioned in the way that it has, both positively and negatively? So we're going to walk through that. And today I want us to start with answering that that key question, what is the church? Now, we all have answers. We all have ideas. We all have ways in which we've experienced the church and the ways in which we would describe the church. But we need to get down to what does God say about the church? How How is the church actually described? Words really do matter here. Uh, If you think through, if you think about the fact that over time, over history, words lose their meaning. A word may begin meaning one thing, and then over time it will change and morph into something else. I have a few words here that uh, you might be surprised to know what they originally meant and what they have come to mean today. The word succinct. Back in the day, succinct meant something being encircled with, with with a band, almost like a belt. That was the original meaning for the word. Today, uh, it means a compact, precise expression with as few words as possible. The idea is not to waste words. 
It's interesting because over time, the way people chose to use a word or whatever they thought were the needs of the time, the word's meaning changed. How about this, the word absurdity? Now, we, uh, we know absurdity today means something that's ridiculous, unreasonable, unsound. But many, many years ago, many centuries ago, I'm talking the 14th and 15th century, the word absurdity referred to dissonance in music. It was a musical term. It was a term that defined when you had one note that was discordant with another note that was known as a musical absurdity. But over time, the, the meaning changed, the name usage, the word usage changed, and now that's the way we know the word. The word hazard. Today, it's a source of danger or a risk. It actually comes from uh, this French word, hansard, which also came from an Arabic word, azar, which simply meant dice, simply meant a game where you take a chance or take a risk. And so back then, if they were using that word hazard, it just simply meant pass the hazard, pass this thing that I can use to play a game of risk. But today, we look at it as something uh, that can be very dangerous. And something even more uh, interesting that I found is the word flagrant. Flagrant today means something that's conspicuously offensive. If you're playing sports or if you watch uh, basketball and somebody visibly, very obviously commits a very harsh foul on a person, they call it a flagrant foul. So again, it's something that's conspicuously offensive. There's nothing secret about it. It's blatant. Uh, it's not surreptitious. It's not clandestine. It's very obvious. It comes from uh, this Latin word flagare, which means to burn. For the longest time, it just simply meant fiery, hot, or burning. But over time, the name changed, the usage changed, the word changed, and so now it means something different. Much like these words, the word church carries a lot of contemporary meanings that deviate or sometimes just differ completely from what the original meaning and usage was. And that can have some significant impacts, very significant impacts on how we live our lives and the world as followers of Jesus. Many of our contemporary meanings of church are event-oriented, right? The gathered worship experience. They're event-oriented or they're institution-oriented, which is uh, kind of focusing on the hierarchical, kind of organizational or denominational nature of, of how we view church. They're often related to uh, preference and not prescription. There are ways in which we prefer church, things about church that we prefer, and we prefer them, and there may be good things, but we use those preferences as a way that we define what church should be, and we assume that they are now prescriptive. And we all have preferences, and preferences aren't a bad thing. Those preferences become absorbed, though. They get absorbed into the definition of a church. And now that preference has become conjoined to and therefore a part of the actual prescription for church. So what do I mean by event-oriented uh, church definitions? Well, there are several factors that will go into how we define church by the event. First, the building. There are some of us that will say it, it doesn't really feel like church 
without a building. Or it doesn't feel like church if the building is a warehouse. Or if the building, you know, if the building isn't a brick building with stained glass windows. Or we might say things feel more reverential and and holy and church-like and more worshipful if I'm in a, a structure that includes pews, stained glass windows, or a cross on the wall. Another way that we become, that we use a, 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 uh, an event-oriented definition for church is the way we define the corporate worship experience, right? The music, the preaching style, whether or not it's expressive enough or whether or not it's solemn enough, various service elements. Do we do communion this way? Do we have baptism this way? Are people uh, 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 professing their faith this way? Is there uh, this type of testimony service during church. All these things are things that are good things, but in many ways, we will use these things to define church, and we'll say things like, we had church today. We'll say things like, church was, church was really good today. Why? Because I really love that music aspect, or I really love the way that person preached. If we come from one type of tradition, there's a certain way and a manner in which we want people to comport themselves when they preach. Maybe it's more what people will call high church. Maybe it's more expressive, which is in and of itself, that seems elitist because everything else is low church and it shouldn't be. But again, that expresses how our preference are defining whether or not something is church-like enough. Or we are, we, our definition is more institution-oriented. And in that sense, we are, in many cases, folks who are focused on an institutional definition of church, uh, they, the, these are heavily rooted in denomination. And so for a lot of people, the church may refer to, if, if people are coming from more of a, of a Catholic background, uh, the church is, is, uh, is really referring to that hierarchy that exists. And not just Catholicism, there are other denominations that function that way. And so in those worlds, by that definition, anything else calling itself a church isn't really looked at as such. This can be pretty exclusive, and it can engender an us versus them mentality. And, and, and it may not be a formal denomination, but it may just be a loose affinity. It may be an affinity where you have a loose connection. It's not a formal denomination. It's not necessarily connected by hierarchy, but it's connected by culture and shared experiences. And that's definitely more prominent among marginalized people groups that, that attend church together. There are some shared experiences within Black churches that are very, maybe differ theologically as well, but there are some shared experiences. And so when people in those worlds will say, well, I, I come from the church, and in the church we do this, well, that's referring more to a shared affinity group. And so now in, the, in their minds, that's what church should be. So what? Why, 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 why does this matter? Why should we even be focused on this? I mean, events are important, right? Uh, gathering for worship with a diversity of expressions aren't bad, right? What's wrong with that being a part of our definition of the church? What's wrong with identifying? Those are all healthy things. Those are all good things. They can be very good and very helpful and, and very worshipful, and we can uh, grow and show incredible fruit through that. But none of these things are used in the New Testament ancient Christian definition of the church. So using those things as definitive can have grave consequences. We'll talk about that later, but now let's look at how the church is described by some of the first folks to be a part of the church. Our first passage comes from the one who created the church, Jesus. 
Look at Matthew 16, verses 16 through 18. Look at how Jesus talks about the church the first time. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, it's important to remember that the early believers were rarely unified in several aspects of their faith. A lot of times we love to talk about, I just want to get back to the, the, the early church. Why can't we do church like the New Testament church did it? We need to be uh, unified in the way that we look at things and unified in the way that we believe things. We've got to get back to this idyllic time where people were more like church than we are now. Honestly, when you look throughout history, the annals of history show, shows us that uh, there never was a time where believers, by and large, were all unified in believing certain things. Now, there are certain core things that you had a large number of folks that believed, but there were always differences in how people understood things in the early church and in centuries to follow, how they understood passages of Scripture. And this Scripture is no exception. Believers early on in the first two or three centuries of the church have long struggled over how to understand this passage because people are trying to figure out how they should be viewing the church. So there are varying interpretations on how to understand this. So some Christian denominations, uh, like the Catholic Church, interpreted this passage to mean that, look at these, these words again, you are Peter, and on this rock will I, will I build my church. Well, many folks would believe that Peter is the rock upon which the church was founded. That's why they consider Peter to be the first pope. However, other believers that are a part of what you would call the Protestant faith, uh, of which we are a part, understand this verse differently. Protestants note the meaning of Peter's name, Cephas, and, and um, uh, uh, Cephas meaning rock. Uh, they look at this as a play on words that Jesus is using. Here they, they see this and say, well, uh, Jesus is comparing Peter's name, Cephas, which means rock, uh, to another rock. What rock was that? Well, the verse that preceded this, right? Jesus asked Peter, he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And so there are many Christians who argue that this confession of faith is the rock upon which the church is built. And just like Peter, everyone who confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord is a member of that church. So that's a vital part of our church definition. Church is not an event. Church is not a hierarchical institution. The church is a body of people who share the same confession of faith, that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Son of the living God. That's our first real, uh, that's our first real picture, our first real trait of the church that we see in the New Testament. Now, throughout the New Testament, the word church is mentioned more than a hundred times. You see this word, this Greek word, ekklesia. You hear that often. You hear people bring up the, the ekklesia, right? The church. What does that actually mean? Well, ekklesia is a, is a compound word of two Greek words that mean an assembly and to call out. And so it has become known to mean, uh, uh, ekklesia uh, uh, is, is known to mean the called out ones. 
those that have been called out, those people who have shared the same confession of faith that we just described that have been called out. So when we add that to our definition, we see this, the New Testament church is a body of believers that has been called out from the world by God to live as his people under the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, look at how Paul described the church to some of the churches he planted in Ephesus, in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So now we see that the church is looked at, you have this body of believers, right? This group of believers that share this confession of faith, that faith that says that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. And you see that this is referred to as almost a physical body, that this is the body of Christ. And when do we see the body of Christ beginning? Well, we saw that in Acts chapter 2 on that day of Pentecost, where you had diverse groups of people having a lot of different worship practices, a lot of different political affiliations, a lot of different ethnic backgrounds. And somehow they were called out of these varying backgrounds that they were in, called out of the ways in which they uh, may have worshiped uh, other gods even. They were called out to share in this confession. They were called out to share and they were called out to be a part of this new body. So what do we see? A person becomes a member of this, what we would call universal church by exercising faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now I say all this because it's important that we understand the difference between the local church and the universal church. The universal church. This is all people who have placed their faith in Jesus, past, present, and future. That's the universal church. It's invisible. You can't always see. You don't know who really believes. You don't know who doesn't. But ultimately, that is what makes up the universal church. And we all who place our faith in Jesus, every one of us, regardless of denomination, regardless of background, regardless of race, creed, any of those things, if we place our faith in Jesus as Lord, believe in Jesus as the Son of the living God, you and I are a part of this universal church. And that's different from the local church. And local churches are important. We need to be a part of a local church, but don't confuse your local church with the universal church. Remember that everyone who shares this confession is a member of the universal church. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, uh, makes this very clear. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uh, tells the church at Corinth and makes it clear, the church of Corinth, who actually is a part of the body of Christ. And it was important. If you remember, we did a series on 1 Corinthians, and you know there were people who were uh, acting as if they were more elite within the church than others and almost making others feel like that they were not a part of the church because they didn't function in the same way or they didn't have the same gifts that other people had and they didn't uh, have the, the, the same theology on a thing that other people had. And so Paul had to remind them. And he said in 1 Corinthians 12, he said, for just as the body is one and has many parts and all the parts of that body, though many are one body, so also is Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit into one body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. 
So Paul makes it clear that uh, these local churches, uh, while you have people in these local churches, uh, you need to ensure that everybody knows that if you're a part, if you believe in these things about Jesus, you are a part of the larger church. You are part of the body. It's, it does not matter whether or not some of the preferential things that you do or that you like about your own faith, if other people aren't doing those preferential things, that doesn't make them any less a part of the body. So you see how this is deeper than just whether or not you engage in this type of spiritual practice or whether or not you engage in this type of worship uh, element, this service element. That doesn't necessarily mean that you are not a part of the body of Christ. We also know that local churches, these local assemblies of believers, they meet for worship and fellowship and prayer and encouragement of the faith. We see that in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25 says this, let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day approaching. So now we're drilling down, right? We've, we've got the universal church. Now we're looking at the local church. And we see, and we're going to talk about this next week, about what the purposes of the local church uh, are. But, but we can see a little bit of that here, right? Because this passage is rooted in the very purpose of the church. But we need to remember that gathering is important for sure. We know that gathering is there, but we need to ask ourselves the question, why is the gathering important? And it's more than just, I feel better when I'm gathered. I, things feel more familiar when I gather. I feel so much more comfortable when I gather. I feel so much more rooted when I gather. All of those things are true. All of those things uh, matter. But we need to ask ourselves that deeper question, why? Why should those things matter? Because the gathering itself is not the primary defining point of the church. We know that because the verse that precedes this makes it really clear. Why do we gather? Because we want to consider one another in order to provoke love and good works. And the opposite of that would mean to neglect one another. So, so at some point, we need to be rooted in loving one another and caring for one another and spurring each other on in love and in good works. That's the point. That's the point of gathering. That's the point of the local church. And so we'll talk about that more next week. But this point should hit close to home for all of us. Look, I, like you, miss gathering together. I miss the singing. I miss being able to have a real dialogue with our congregation. It is very different preaching to a camera versus preaching to live bodies. There's a way in which we get to communicate one to another and see what is the Spirit doing in the midst of our communicating and communing with God. I miss having communion together with other brothers and sisters in the faith. COVID-19, this pandemic has posed innumerable challenges, not the least of which is the inability for believers to gather for local church services. Last week, Pastor Jen touched on this when she reminded us that we are not living in unprecedented times. Churches all over the world have faced times just like this um, almost a little over a century ago during the Spanish flu. Those churches were forced to be reminded of what the true definition of church is. 
See, this isn't a new thing. This isn't something that we are just now having to figure out. It might be new to us because most of us weren't alive back in 1918. Uh, but for the most part, this is something that folks have had to, to meet. This is a challenge that believers had to meet. They had to ask this question. They had to be forced to reconsider what the real definition of church is. Let's just look back at that for a minute. 104 years ago, 1918, churches all over the world closed. Many of them closed their doors with the hopes of saving lives. And what did we see? Many of those churches, like today, lost financial support. Some of them closed permanently. Some churches uh, lived off of getting drop-off donations and turned their churches from sanctuaries into hospitals. They had doctors there in the church buildings to help treat folks who had been infected with the Spanish flu. For many congregants, their homes became their altar. In many cases, folks were told by their churches and they were given instruction on how to have some of their own church services by having some of the materials that they would go through in Sunday school and sermons would be printed out and sent to families so that they could have church services to some degree at home. But, much like today, there were those who emphasized a definition of church that hinged on the local church gathering, and these church leaders refused to adapt to the pandemic and reaped grave consequences. According to one science journalist named Laura Spinney in her book, uh, The Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World, she wrote this, mass gatherings were positively encouraged. And at 3%, more than twice the national average, there was this city in the, name of, uh, in, in the country of Spain called Zamora. And Zamora had the highest death rate of any city in Spain. September of that year, a local bishop rebelled against the health authorities by ordering evening prayers in the churches for nine days because he believed the pandemic had befallen them due to their sins and ingratitude. So on day one, he ordered everyone to come to church and gave Holy Communion to a large crowd at this one particular church in the city of Zamora. He uh, ordered at another church, ordered the congregation to come and line up and come close to some of these holy relics and artifacts and even kiss some of them. Uh, the city of Zamora had several newspapers, and in those newspapers, there were advertisements. And they were advertisements for upcoming church services right next to another advertisement that was a warning, uh, warning folks to avoid large crowds. Does that sound familiar? And then uh, a month later, the bishop wrote that science had proven itself ineffective and that people were beginning to turn their eyes instead toward heaven. Does that sound familiar? This idea that folks, again, are not, uh, they get to a point where the, the scientists, those who have, have knowledge enabled by God to say, these are things we want in order to love people well. And folks instead are doing this crazy thing that we often do. When I'm overwhelmed with actual things and we have to be careful, like Pastor Jen preached, be very careful not to be so overwhelmed that there is no more joy and there is no more hope and we don't hold on to who Jesus is and hold on to who the good news is. But people instead get so, in many ways, they run to Jesus as a way of escapism. And in that way, they're not loving people at all. And, these, and so this, this bishop was actually encouraging people to say, listen, science seems to be failing anyway. Just trust Jesus, which sounds good on the surface, but actually is not at all what it means to wisely love 
God or our neighbor. And so that's what folks did. They went, we're going to trust God instead, as if you're not trusting God by being careful and engaging this pandemic. People continued to attend gatherings in packed cathedrals, in packed churches, and in packed streets. And when health officials tried to prohibit those gatherings, the bishop accused them of interfering in church affairs. Does that sound familiar? By mid-November, Zamora saw more illness and death than any other city in Spain. Priests and parishioners lost their lives. And the bishop, after seeing all of this, praised those who had placated God's legitimate anger by attending services. What, what do we see there? The definition being used for church is rooted in the event. It's rooted in the gathering itself and not actually the people. There's a similar story in Alaska during the same time. In the Seward Peninsula, in mid-November, it was the last, uh, I'm sorry, in the end of November, it was the last Saturday of the month, and there were two visitors from Nome, Alaska. I lived in Alaska for three years. Nome is like this very remote city, and it takes a little while to get to anywhere around Alaska, especially Nome. And there were these two visitors from Nome that went to Seward, and they went there to attend the standing room-only church service. It was at a small local chapter. And those visitors, they had come and they visited their friends and some uh, family members in Seward, and they came there reporting, listen, there are folks back in our hometown, and a lot of them are really sick, but no one's really too worried about it, because many times, just like now, uh, it was really easy to go, if I don't feel like it's a big deal, it's probably not a big deal. And so that's what they did. They went to church because they were encouraged to go, and so they went, and they said, hey, nobody's really alarmed back home. Two days after that church service, villagers became sick with the flu. Of the 80 Eskimo villagers, 72 died. Their bodies were left frozen in their igloos. Horrific stories and details around that. And by the end of that three-week outbreak, the village housed only five adults and 46 orphaned children. Listen, when we get to a place where we overemphasize church as primarily an event, especially in times like these, it can literally have grave consequences. It's so important now more than ever for us to really get back and calibrate what is the church truly? What does it mean for us to be the church? Like you, I miss going to church services. I miss the local gathering and we are working feverishly to figure out how to make that happen eventually when it's safe, healthy, and wise to do so. But we need to ask ourselves the question still, am I overemphasizing the local church gathering to the extent that it is making up the lion's share of my definition of the church? Because if that's the case, there might be an imbalance there. There may even be a little bit of idolatry there. And in so doing, it's not just I'm upset or I'm sad. There are some decisions we could end up making that could cause actual death. And what's also sad is when these things happen, when people die, there are people dying right now. You see this every day. People who are maybe making what I would call foolish decisions and they make those decisions and then people die and they go to these church services and people end up getting sick and dying and people are going, well, they trusted God and they died. So now they die a martyr. This is not, God is not calling us to make foolish decisions in order to force ourselves into some form of martyrdom. 
That's not what this is for. We are here to be able to figure out what does it mean to, yes, serve God, trust God, but love each other well and not use church or use Jesus to hide from issues that we are called to engage. So how do we do that at, as, as the, the church? How do we be careful not to overemphasize the, the gathering? Something we know we want and we need and we, we long for, but how do we not overemphasize that to the point where it actually causes more damage than it does actual good? This is what the old folks used to call being so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. We have to be careful that, and it's not even, it's, it's such an irony because it's not even heavenly minded because heaven ain't, heaven ain't about that. <laughs> but we think so, and it makes us feel better, so it must be true. But it isn't. I'm reminded of these words from the founder of the home church movement in England, Canon Ernest Southcott, and he, he puts it this way, the holiest moment of the church service is the moment when God's people, strengthened by preaching and sacrament, go out of the church doors into the world to be the church. We don't go to church. We are the church. So as we wait, as we pray, as we wisely engage, as we take proper precautions and we are engaging this pandemic, much in the same way that uh, many of our fellow believers a hundred years ago were engaging and waiting for three to four years, figuring out how to engage this pandemic well and be the church, Let us remember that the church is not a place. The church is not a building. The church is not a location. The church is not a denomination. God's people who are in Christ Jesus are the church. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would. Father, I'm thankful that you have made a promise to us before we even make any petition of you. You have made a promise to build your church. And you've said that the gates of Hades, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Lord, we know that there is nothing that will stop your church. Lord, I pray that we would understand when you say your church will be built, you're not talking about a building. You're not even talking about our services. You're not talking about a a denomination. You're talking about a body of believers that love you, that trust you, that rest in you. Father, I pray that we would be trusting you so much and we would know that you are truly, uh, you are God. You are the author and finisher of all that we believe and all that we hope for. We are your church. We are your body. And so God, I pray that you would make clear what it means for us then, not to only long to quote unquote go to church, but that we would acknowledge that we indeed are are the church. Lord, give us wisdom on what it means to be the church in times of pestilence, in times of a pandemic, in times of uncertainty. Lord, what does it mean to be spurred on to love and good works when we have folks who are sick, when we know people who are dying? God, I pray that we would not become Christian ostriches that just place our head in the sand with pictures of who you might be and hopes of what you might do, as opposed to engaging what you've called us to do, to love you and to love our neighbor. And if that means taking precautions while we are being the church until we can again meet as the church, Lord, then so be it. God, we pray that you would give us that wisdom, that you would give us that hope, that you would give us that perseverance 
that we can, in these difficult times, remain and be the church until you come and show us through your spirit and through your people and through wisdom until we know that these things have passed and we then can meet again in person. God, we pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's receive the benediction of God together. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people, the church said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.